You're listening to the No Name Photo Show. It's not spouse approved. It may or may not be safe for work. We'll see. And now here's your host, Brian Matias, and me, Sharky James. So, Brian, here we are, episode 32. Yes, Sharky, we have duo driven. Oh, man, you know, I was all excited. I thought I had it in there. I even practiced it. But we have duo Trision tuppled our episode output. I tell you, you're all about the D, man. You always see in Drision instead of Trision, and there's double them today. So even with twice as many, you still screwed it up. Yeah, I just, uh, it, we're recording later in the weekend, later in the day than we normally do. And so I'm kind of like, kind of tired. I'm not all there is what I'm saying. It should be a fun show then. So why don't you tell us what's on today's episode? For sure. So uh, two topics coming uh, from Petapixel. These are uh, from about a week, week and a half ago. I uh, remember we took last week off. So, but I think they're, they're really good topics. And the first one, uh, this was a, a video that a photographer, uh, his name is Jamie Windsor, created and Petapixel picked it up and shared it. And it's called Why Bad Photographers Think They're Good. I think it's a brilliant video. Uh, you and I both watched it. I really appreciate the the messaging, the way Jamie put the messaging together, because I think a lot of photographers can appreciate it and fall into the, somewhat of the pits and quagmires that he goes into. Second one, I think this is a, another good topic, one that will resonate with a lot of photographers. The It's another Petapixel article. Author is Kieran Stone, and uh, the title is Why I Use Getty Images to Sell My Photos. It's not so much, I don't think you and I need to necessarily dive into the virtues of using Getty, which is a stock agency, massive one at that. But more, I think it'd be fun to talk about ways that photographers can consider, you know, using supplemental or passive revenue streams with their photos and things they can do to help grow that. And to pay for your gear lust, your gas. Absolutely. I think uh, for a lot of people, I know several people, close friends who they don't consider themselves full-time photographers, but they have a strong enough portfolio where this kind of passive income stream, all it does for them is it pays for the gear they buy or the trips that they take. Sounds good. It's going to be a fun episode. Yeah. We got to remember how to do this thing. It's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I'm glad we're back, you know, getting into it, kind of shaking off the cobwebs and putting a little grease in the creaky joints. Just a little bit. It's like WD-40. A little bit goes a long way. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to use too much of that. No, you don't. No, too much lube or grease or whatever you want to call it. Sure. So Sharky, you've you've watched the video that I'm talking about, right? With uh, by Jamie Windsor, the why bad photographers think they're good. Correct, and it's a good one too. It is. It's pretty funny and so so true. And we're going to, of course, link to it in the show notes at nonamephotoshow.com. But here's the thing, and and it, this is certainly this can be applied. He talks about uh, this effect called the Dunning Kruger effect. By he, I mean Jamie Windsor, the photographer who created this video concept that I think doesn't just apply to photographers. Or I think it can apply to just about anyone uh, where, you know, not really knowing, you, you know, imagine if you are actually not a very strong photographer for whatever reason. You can't lift your light stands or anything. You're just you need that blue cart. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That blue oh, wait. or the camouflage. You're talking about something completely different. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm talking about like you're just not a good photographer. I'm, I know I'm not a good guitarist. Uh, if I picked up a guitar, I would be awful. But there is this kind of effect or phenomenon where someone who's bad, whether it's because of ego or any other 
you know, some other external or internal variables. You actually think that you're good. You're playing. You think you're actually good. I, I think a lot about uh, the early days, the, the frontier days of HDR photography, where people were putting on, myself included, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to just use myself as an example. In the early days, Sharky, man, some of those photos I put out there, they, they were, they, I look at them. In fact, I, I created this entire video series on that, on these like awful photos. It was like a Peter Max painting, except for not good. Exactly. But imagine if without any sort of barometer or, a, you know, a, a baseline, you know, I tell myself that I'm actually good, you know, and, and, and the more I tell myself that, the more I reinforce it. And in a way, you know, there are a lot of issues even just today, politically wise, where this effect can be seen. But the problem, I think, is how can a photographer, Sharky, be cognizant of whether, you know, if they aren't as strong of a photographer, the problem I think is that a lot of people take it very, uh, you know, to heart. Like if they're not a strong photographer, a defense mechanism might come in or uh, they might just outright ignore any sort of criticism or feedback. Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you can go a couple ways with this. Somebody might be like, well, forget you. I'm great. I'm the next Peter Lick or whatever. Right. Right. Or just give up on your photography altogether because you're like, well, I really suck. Here's what I think happens. And we all do this to a certain extent, everyone to a certain extent at some point in your life. But I think with photographers, you spend a lot of money on your gear. And so you have to justify it. And in justifying that expense to whether it's your spouse or just other photographers online, because you go on the forums and that's where all the pros hang out, except for they do not. They're out shooting. They're not talking about shooting. You justify your existence as a photographer by building yourself up. You don't know what you don't know. And as time goes by and you actually learn a trick or two and learn that you don't know like everything, you start to get it, it flips around. You, you all of a sudden realize, oh, wow, I don't know anywhere near what I thought that I actually knew or I was pretending that I knew. And then so you get this kind of effect where, you know, it's, he talks about this where you start feeling like a fraud. You know, like when I first started the Petapixel Photography Podcast, there you go. Check. Done. I had never done a podcast before. I'd listened to him for like, you know, seven, eight years or whatever by that point. So I, I kind of knew how you did it, but I didn't actually do it. And so if you go listen to those old episodes, they are horrible. Just, you know, even go back 100 episodes. I'm on like 272 now. Go back to 172. It's horrible. You know, you get better over time. And so I didn't know what I didn't know. I thought I did a pretty decent job back then. When Petapixel was like, hey, you know, come on over, let's team up. I was only 39 episodes deep at that point. And those were horrendous compared to, like I said, just like 100 episodes ago. Do you watch Seinfeld, Sharky? I have not watched Seinfeld in forever. Yada, yada, yada. So if you watch the first season of Seinfeld and then you flash forward to, say, the end, I mean, just the, the staggering, of course, you know, in, in the beginning of when you start something, odds are it's going to be rough around the edges. And I want to read this really quickly because we talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. I just I, I casually brought it up, but I want to give you a little bit of color to it uh, from the article, the Petapixel article. It says, in their 1999 study, so it's not 1999. I mean, it's almost 20 years, but 20 years in academia is not very long. It's still relatively modern, or I would consider it moder modern science. So in their 1999 study, social psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger found that people who have virtually no skill in something often rate themselves as near experts because they simply don't understand how much they actually have to learn. 
So, you know, if if you're asked to rate yourself and you're kind of close to uh, the starting line, but you have no concept, no bearing of how far along the finish line is proverbially, of course, you're going to want, you know, you're going to say, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty far along. And to quote, it says, um, to quote Dunning, if you're incompetent, you can't know you're incompetent. The skills you need to produce a right answer are exactly the skills you need to recognize what a right answer is. And that makes total sense. Meaning the, in order to, if, if, to equate it to photography, let's say you want to achieve a specific, uh, you know, lighted, you know, look in a portrait. And in order to achieve that, you need to know, not, not saying you have to execute, you, you need to know, A, these are the camera settings, B, this is the position, C, these are the lights I need, and, this, and D, how to properly set them and position them. Just by virtue of knowing that is what you need to execute, you can execute, assuming, of course, you have the gear. And so the problem is, again, just to read it, I think it's a really smart, strong sentence. The skills you need to produce a right answer are exactly the skills you need to recognize what a right answer is. So, you know, I, I do think that, you know, a lot of photographers, I know, I, I don't even want to say that. I don't want to say I think that a lot of photographers, but I do believe that there is a, a group of photographers who they might have an inflated sense of their skill, not because of ego necessarily. We're talking about film shooters. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, we're not talking about <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I'm saying is these are photographers who, who don't, you know, inflate themselves because of any sort of ego, but simply or perhaps they just simply don't know yet or don't, you know, what, you know, being a truly strong, good photographer means. I'm not talking about necessarily just the ability to take a good photo, but also being able to have a strong, deep catalog of work. You know, that just because you happen to take one strong photo doesn't make you a great photographer. You know, you want to fall back onto a deep, rich catalog. It's like early in my photojournalism career, you know, I had, I don't suffer from lack of confidence. I just don't. Okay. Try to keep it in check, but sure. I'm confident in my abilities. And, you know, I'd been shooting by the time I was a photojournalist, I'd been shooting for, you know, 20 years, just, you know, as a photographer, just enjoying photography. So I knew the ins and outs, et cetera. Early on in my photojournalism career, I thought, uh, not that I was great, but I was like, all right, I know what I'm doing. And then you learn you don't know what you're doing. Then you learn that stuff and then you improve on it over time. And towards the end, well, the end of my photojournalism career a few years back, I was dialed in. I mean, I, it was to the point where I could shoot a high school football game and shoot 250 frames. And that includes halftime, whereas early in my career might have been like a thousand or something. You know, so you just you learn over time and you learn what you need to know to get the job done. And early on, like I said, you see a lot of these guys, and it's mostly guys. Women do not do this. They're smart. They buy, you know, like two or three pro bodies and big lenses. They go shoot a football game. They want to look the part. They want to prove to other people that they're a photographer. They're cool. I don't know why it's cool to like prove you're a photographer or like my dreams to shoot the Super Bowl someday. Big deal. You know, it's like whatever. It's just a game. No one's going to be like, wow, that guy is really cool. I want to be him or her or whatever. And so you puff yourself up. A lot of people do. And then you learn that you don't know what you're doing and you feel badly about it. And you either wash out of photography or you go, you know what? I need to acquire the skills to actually be good at this. And then you get better and then you feel better about your photography and you don't tell people how great you are. You just let your work speak for itself. Absolutely. And I like the idea what you brought up in terms of how you were able to, you know, for the, the same type of game, you know, a high school football game, you know, you kind of compared earlier on where you have a much higher shoot count to, you know, later on where you are more refined. 
I, the same thing for me, I, I find like I was, uh, I just got back the other day from a shoot in Detroit. I went with a few buddies. It was the second time we've done it where we just, you know, we go to Detroit and we get our fill of urbex photography. And as a photographer, you know, I've been practicing urbex for many, many years. I took a huge break from it, you know, for the most part when I lived in the Pacific Northwest. But there is something to say about knowing when you don't need to take a photo. So, you know, sometimes I feel like there are photographers, you know, you just, you, you drop your tripod and you take 50 different photos of essentially the same thing. And for me, as I've grown as a photographer, one of the things that I really appreciate is kind of knowing when, you know what, I don't need this photo right now. This is, this is another, just yet another, in this case, a, a photo of a long hallway with, you know, dappled light and all kinds of crusty stuff. I have a, a bunch of these already and, and I just don't need, there's nothing about this particular hallway that is any different than any other one. If there was something specific about it, of course. But I, I do think that being more refined in making that decision, do I need to take this photo or not? I'm not even talking about, you know, the argument that digital photos, you know, there's no cost to it, for, you know, virtually, but it's just not something I need. So, so I, I mean, Sharky, again, I want everyone to go to uh, the show notes and watch the video because, and, and I would love to have uh, Jamie on, you know, so far, Sharky, I don't know if, if uh, you've seen this, but there have been people who we've referenced on the show, like their articles and stuff, and they reached out to us. So, so without, of course, I want to reach out to Jamie, but Jamie, if some through serendipitous way you hear about this, and again, this is Jamie Windsor, we'd love to have you on because I love the video. I want everyone to watch it. I think it's a really, not just a good message, but the production value of the video is fantastic. I love his approach and his thought process. It's like I, I found myself nodding as I was watching his video because exactly. it's so true. He's dialed in on and he's really honest about, you know, how he used to be kind of like that, too. I mean, we all are. You have to admit that when you first get your gear, you know, you're you're kind of playing photographer. You know, it's like you're trying to look the part. It's like, you know, uh, fake it till you make it kind of thing. And, sure. and then you gather the skills and then you're the real deal. Absolutely. All right. Did we beat this one dead? It's dead. It's like beyond dead. It's already risen again and then dead again. I wish that was dead because you went a little too far with that analogy, but it's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to excuse it this once. I'm going with more of a zombie thing and not like an Easter thing because we're well past Easter. It was highly inappropriate, but it was by accident. So it's okay. You're forgiven in the spirit of, you know, Christianity and such. Wonderful. <laughs> thank, thank you. So, so Sharky. Uh, this next segment is um, another Petapixel article by, again, Kieran Stone is the author. And I, it was a, it's a great title. I think it's a, it, this is, uh, you know, well produced. It says why I use Getty images to sell my photos. I think it's, it's very clear and to the point. And what I'd like to do is use this article as kind of a launch pad to talk about ways in which maybe some of our listeners can think about adopting kind of passive income streams with their photos. Because if you think about it, and, and tell me if you disagree or if you have a different idea, but for a lot of photographers, the definition to them, when, when someone asks, uh, for instance, okay, we had someone come into our house yesterday to uh, install a radon mitigation system because the radon levels in the basement are a bit high. And because my office is in the basement, I wanted to mitigate that. So when he was done, we were chatting. He noticed the you know photos uh, hanging on the wall, and he asked if we were photographers. And the first thing that he asks is, "Oh, so you sell your photos?" And I believe that that is a concept that a lot of people, whether it's just a lay person or just general photographers, think that in order to be a, a professional photographer, that just means you're you're selling your photos, like they're just hanging. And 
What do you think about that? As far as what? How to define yourself as a, a professional or? No. Well, first, do you is that something that you agree with? Like, do you, have you experienced that as like when someone asks or when you've defined yourself as a uh, working photographer or professional photographer, does that usually equate to like, oh, you sell your photos? I don't know. I guess it depends on who you ask. These days, I think if somebody asks you, oh, you know, are you a professional photographer? What they probably have in their mind is not Peter Lick, not Joe McNally. They think you're the local photographer who's shooting birthday parties and maybe weddings and senior photos and and that sort of thing. I think that's what people think of as a professional photographer today. Okay. And so I would think you and I would agree that for the most part, I would see even our audience, that's not what they do. They might do it on the side or anything, but I will say that, and I think you'll also agree that everyone who listens to the show is a passionate photographer. They take a lot of photos. They share a lot of photos. You agree? I think so. If you're listening to a photography podcast, chances are you're interested in photography. I'm just going to go out on a limb right there. Right. I don't know if we have, you know, too many like, you know, cartoonists, you know, who are subscribing to the show and that's all they do. But I do think it would be important. You know, and it may, it may very well be that there are people in the audience who have no inclination or desire to earn any sort of income from their, their work. But imagine if there are things that you can do to help, like you said, kind of feed the gas, the gear acquisition syndrome, uh, where maybe, you know, for your significant other, if you can show them that you're bringing in a couple hundred dollars or even more a month, every couple of months, that will justify, you know, going on a trip to Detroit for no apparent reason or, you know, justify buying that lens or that new camera body. And so I think it would be fun, Sharky, to talk about ways. Again, we're using this in this situation. The author of this post goes into detail about how stock photography using Getty is uh, as a kind of a passive supplemental income stream. And so I have my own, uh, a few of my own ideas, but I wanted to ask you, Sharky, if do you do anything, uh, whether it's stock related or just in general, outside of obviously your primary income, which is through your podcast uh, and your partnerships, do you do anything that kind of helps bring in just, you know, some, some passive income? I don't. And for the reason that I don't need to, because the Petapixel Photography Podcast is one of the most listened to on the planet. And so we have advertisers and that, you know, pays the bills. And so it makes sense to put all my efforts into that. That's not super diversified, but I'm not going to go hang out my shingle and start shooting weddings and stuff. I just don't have time for that. And I think a lot of photographers think, oh, you know, I'll go out and I'll shoot flowers, I'll shoot buildings, etc. I'll put those up on Getty, I'll put them, you know, wherever, and the money's just going to start rolling in. And that is mostly not true. Even if you're really good, the pay is so low in micro stock these days. I think it is almost pointless. I think if you've got really good photos and you've got the time, put them up there, but you would probably make a whole lot more money just reaching out to your network locally, family and friends, etc., and shooting portraits or shooting, you know, photos of their pets or whatever. You'll make a lot more money that way than you're going to with stock photography. I think but you know, that's the more passive thing. You put your photos up and the money comes in versus now I have to go do a shoot, etc. But you're going to make more money that way than with stock. Perhaps. I mean, for me, I don't use Getty. I use Stocksy. And it's, it's, I jumped on that bandwagon when they first launched. Stocksy is a kind of a di- slightly different beast in terms of a stock agency because they're more of a co-op. So there is a certain kind of uh, where you have, you know, the, the users and the contributors are somewhat part owners um, and there's kind of profit sharing and stuff like that. With that said, I've, I mean, maybe several hundred dollars a year I've earned. And that's only because I treat it very passively. 
But here's the thing. I do think that photographers should at least consider stock. And here's why. Not necessarily for the monetary reason, but one of the things that plague a lot of photographers is that they don't know, you know, they don't, they feel like they have to travel somewhere to, to, to get photographs. And in reality, stock photography, if you think about it, stock photography for the most part is simply just the kind of photos, you know, that, that a company has a marketing team and they have some campaign and they just need some imagery. They don't have the imagery in-house, but they go to a stock agency. So one of the things that I love to advise photographers, especially photographers with kids, is to use your kids to take photos, like go out somewhere. If it's raining, get a really bright, like yellow raincoat and galoshes and stuff and go out and take photos with them in the rain. And those photos become instantly very, very viable for stock and doesn't require you to do anything. The The key with that is you need to be very, very kind of prolific you, in order to, you, if you upload 10 photos to your stock portfolio, unless they're 10 photos that no one else in the world can possibly have, odds are you're never going to see a penny. But, and there are other things that we can talk about, that's an entire, stock photography in and of itself is, is an entirely different subject where you talk about the importance of keywording and all that stuff. But, oh, Sharky, did you want to say something? I was going to say that you have to do a little bit of a cost benefit analysis. You know, what's your ROI and other business sure. terms? What kind of return on investment are you going to get? If you're going out to shoot something that you enjoy, you're shooting the Grand Tetons. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> bravo. It may- <laughs> It made a return. Very nice. <laughs> Anyhow, if you're going to go shoot these things because you enjoy it, why not put them up on stock photography sites? Why not? Just do that. But just know that you're probably not going to make a whole lot of money. So if you're doing it anyhow, think of that as extra passive income beer money. You're going to be able to buy a pint once a year. Now, sure. if you wanted to actually make some money, you're going to have to put a whole lot more effort into it. And you're going to have to create something that's a little bit more rare. And so, again, how do you do that? You go shoot senior photos and stuff, right? Becky Johnson down the street. There's only one of her unless she's got a twin. And then it's kind of confusing. But you can shoot photos of her and her parents will pay you, I don't know, 300, 500 bucks or so. That's way more than you're going to make all year with stock. Most likely the average stock photographer is probably making like 48 cents a year. No, probably just add maybe a zero or two of that, and that's all it is. So you have a better chance of getting money out of your effort if you go shoot something specific. But you have to enjoy doing it. Otherwise, then you're doing it for the money, and then your photography is not fun, and it's like, well, why am I doing this? There's a balance there. You have to kind of kind of figure out how it's going to work out for you. Absolutely. And again, this could be it very well be that a large part of our audience is just simply not interested in, I don't even want to say recouping the costs because it might simply be for them. They see it as, a, for lack of better words, a sunk cost. They buy the camera and the lens just simply because they want to enjoy taking photos. But for others, I do think that there are a lot of opportunities to help bring money, especially for photographers who are also what I would consider content creators. What I mean by that, the distinction between a photographer and a content creator is a photographer, you take your photos and maybe you share them on social media, on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. And a content creator would take those photos and create something more out of it. So like a blog post or a tutorial or a video or a review. And especially if you're one of those people who do uh, videos or reviews, one of the best things you can do is also leverage what are called affiliate programs. And that's something that I know Sharky does and I do. Um, So let's just say, for example, you know, you are someone who's passionate about On One or Luminar, Skylum. All of these companies have, or even Adobe, you know, Adobe has an affiliate program. All of these companies have 
this thing where you sign up and uh, what it does is it gives you a unique URL to their product. So with on one, it would be on one.com slash whatever, and then your affiliate code. And then I, I go ahead and I create a video on how I use on one to edit this photo. There's value added there in the post or in the, uh, in the, you know, at the end, in the description of the video, I would say, okay, here's, you know, if you don't have on one, here's a link to it. If you click on that link, same thing with Amazon, same thing with B&H, you click on the link and you actually make a purchase. As long as you click through the, you know, the individual's affiliate link, that individual will get a percentage of that, of that sale. And to me, affiliate generated income is fantastic with a huge asterisk. If you're going to do it, be upfront about it. Tell your audience, by the way, this is an affiliate link. If you click it and make a purchase, I will get a percentage. Thank you very much for your support. For instance, if you go to nonamephotoshow.com in the what's on your gear shelf, those are all affiliate links to Sharky's and my affiliate accounts for Amazon B&H. And we say in the, I think they about her, there's usually a disclaimer section that, that says this is affiliate. And we're very proud of it because it helps us do what we do. But that's just another thing, Sharky, that I think photographers can consider, who, photographers who are content creators. But you need a ginormous audience or a whole lot of traffic coming out of Google to do it. We have a huge audience with this show, and yet it's like beer money from that, from the affiliate stuff. It's like so small. Here, it's You know what? It's okay to have a hobby and be a hobbyist photographer and not pay for it. You know, people who go fishing, they don't buy rods and reels, go catch fish, and then go, you know, open up a, a stand on the corner and, and, and sell them to justify their pole, right? Sure. But uh, I, I, and I know nothing about fishing rods or the costs involved with it, but I would suspect that a fishing rod doesn't cost as much as some lenses. All right. Well, let's say, so you need to buy a boat and you need to get a motor. Now you need a boat. <laughs> I can't just stand on the side of some river or something like with a fishing rod. I don't know. I've, no, I've never fished before. I don't know. The best fish are, let's say for the sake of argument and this premise, they're in the middle of the lake and right. you can't walk out to the middle of the lake in your waders. So you need a boat. So you're spending thousands of dollars, let's say, for your hobby. You're not going to go selling the fish. It does, you don't have to. Or you you own the rod, but you rent the boat, like we often tell photographers to rent the gear that they don't have. I'm not saying, and I totally get what you're saying, Sharky, in terms of, you know, it's okay to have a hobby. But by saying that, you are utterly cutting the legs out of the segment. Because the whole premise is for photographer. We are already saying this is for photographers who are interested in earning some passive income. So you're saying, like I said, if you have some great photos, put them up on the stock sites. Just you're not going to make much money. Just go shoot senior photos. Go shoot whatever. And, and and try to make some extra money that way. If We're talking about people who aren't trying to make this as a career. You're just trying to make some extra income to offset your gear. I, I think you're going down the wrong rabbit hole if you're going to just go the stock route because you're going to be disappointed. You will make more money by shooting photos of family and friends. Maybe don't do a wedding if you've never done that before, especially as a you know first shooter, maybe a second shooter. You don't want to mess that up. Do something low impact like senior photos, business portraits, whatever, assuming you have you know a decent enough skill that people are willing to pay you. There you go. Did we beat that one dead? I think so. Is that one coming back on next season of The Walking Dead? Oh, man, I've given up on that show. All right, Sharky, I have a question for you. What is that, Brian? Well, if you couldn't guess, it's what's on your gear shelf. 
It's only been a couple of weeks, but I had a, I had a pretty good inclination of what you were going to ask me. Yet I asked anyhow. Nice. So my gear pick, and you know, full disclosure, they're one of our sponsors over on the Petapixel Photography Podcast. Tenba, you know, I've got a bunch of Tenba bags. I've got a bunch of Tenba gear. I've had Tenba stuff for years, even before they were a sponsor, and they make all kinds of stuff. So you want to go to tenba.com, T-E-N-B-A.com. These lens wraps, this one's a 20-inch lens wrap. It's only about 20 bucks or so. You know, it's a combination of felt and other materials, and it's got Velcro on it and stuff. You got to protect your gear. Just because you have those dividers inside your bag doesn't mean that that's all you have to have for it. Get a couple of extra ones of these. Sometimes you're going to want to put your lens in a wrap and just protect it a little bit more. Sometimes you just need a little bit extra padding in there. You can fold this up and then drop it into a slot or next to a lens to kind of keep it so it stays put. You don't want it necessarily rattling around your lens we're talking about inside your camera bag, especially if you're checking your luggage, which you know you shouldn't with your gear in it. But still, get some of these. Get a couple of them. Drop 40 bucks or so, and then you've got them. And if you don't need them, you don't have to put them in there. But you're going to need it at some point. And you don't want to stick... I don't know. You could stick like an old T-shirt or something in there, but that's not going to be as padded or as protected as this. So get one of these. It's a Tenba lens wrap. It's like a protective wrap, 20 inches. They're, they come in a bunch of different colors, a bunch of different sizes. You got to have some. It's one of those things like gaffer tape you just have to have. Nice. So, Brian, I have a question for you. <laughs> I don't know if you have any inclination as to what it might be, but in case you're wondering, I would like to know what's on your gear shelf. I thank you for asking, Sharky. Um, so what's on my gear shelf is something that I actually just use a ton of in Detroit. Like I mentioned, I was just there on this kind of urbex shoot. And for those that can't imagine what walking around the, the hollow interior of a bombed out, totally decayed building could be like, it's, it's gross, but it's also very dusty. And, um, you know, a lot of times you have this kind of these sediments that are kind of on the front of your lens. It was also raining, which sucked. So the thing was, you know, you might think, all right, well, microfiber cloths. Problem with microfiber cloths, for me at least, is that they just smudge. Um, they just move the dirt around. And if it is wet, then all it's doing is creating smudges that don't go away. Uh, and the cloth itself just gets dirtier. So I always pack, it's by Zeiss, which is, I remember when I first learned about these this product, I was surprised, but then not because Zeiss makes lenses. And I am a Zeiss lens ambassador, but uh, I this has nothing to do with with Zeiss lenses. These are just Zeiss lens wipes. They're kind of single serving uh, little wipes. Each of them are individually packaged. And when you open it up, it kind of smells like rubbing alcohol. Yep. There you go. Sharky's holding something similar up on camera. But the thing that I love about it is it is wet enough. So it will kind of remove any dry debris, but because it has that alcohol solution in it, it dries almost instantly. You wipe it and then there are no streaks. And then you just, you know, obviously don't litter. I put it, the, them in my pocket or in my camera bag and I toss them out. You know, once you take it out of the, the little pouch, you know, it'll dry out just naturally very quickly. So you want to use it, but they come in packs of like 60, 80, 200. They're not very expensive at all. And all you just need to do, still pack microfiber or two with you. I think those are very important. But if, uh, if there's something that's caked on you, you know, something gunky on the front of your lens, this is a really great solution. I do not recommend you use it to wipe your sensor. If you're one of those people who cleans your sensor, please don't use it to wipe your sensor. And uh, yeah, they're great to have. I've got at least three or four in each of my camera bags. You know, you got those small little zippered flat kind of pouches where not much, you know, fits in like a little zippered kind of area. Those lie flat. It just makes sense. 
Put those in there. You're going to need it. And then so you wipe off the front of your lens with it. And what I do then is I take that opportunity to wipe down my iPhone. You know, your iPhone gets oh, all gunky and stuff. So you, you well, why not? Right. Dual sure. use. Why crack open another one and burn one when you can just, you know, use it to go. And then you can use it for your eyeglasses and just wiping down whatever. It's a bit, they're alcohol kind of swabs, basically. Very cool. That was a good pick. And I curse you because that was probably going to be a future pick of mine. So that's what's not on my gear shelf in the future. That's right. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks for that. Sure. <laughs> so, Brian, I think this was a great show, if I do say so myself. What do you say? Yeah, I would agree. I'd say so as well. Wow. Awesome. So how about you tell people where to find us and where to find you? Sharky, it'd be my pleasure. So you can find us at nonamephotoshow.com. Again, that's where uh, you can find show notes for this show and every other episode we've done along with uh, all of our picks for what's on your gear shelf. As for me, my website's matias.com. That's M-A-T-I-A-S-H.com. On social, I'm at Brian Matias, B-R-I-A-N-M-A-T-I-A-S-H, pretty much everywhere. Sharky, what if someone wants to get in touch with you? If they want to get in touch with me, you could find me on the socials, as you say, at Lens Shark. Two S's in there. I'm not Len Shark. I don't know that person. That's not me. So I take no responsibility for what they're posting. And if you want to check out the Petapixel Photography Podcast, go to petapixel.com slash podcast or just find it in your favorite podcatcher. Chances are you probably already listened to it. Just a guess. That's a bold statement. It is a bold statement. <laughs> You'd be surprised who listens to that show. We're talking some big names, famous people like Brian Matias. There you go. So you know what, Brian? I think it's time to clap this out. What do you say? I, I couldn't wait. I was so excited. <laughs> it's your favorite part of the show. That and screwing up the tuples. That's right. <laughs> All right, here we go. One, two. We'll fix it in post. All right. Love you, brother. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the No Name Photo Show. Sharky and I would be thrilled if you would subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using and tell a friend. So how about we do this again in the next episode? Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm.